0: This is Stacey Harbaugh and Nate Wegehout with your local news coming to you live via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. A new Marquette Law School poll released today finds that the majority of Republicans in Wisconsin want former President Donald Trump to run for president in 2024. The poll, which surveyed over 800 registered Wisconsin voters in the last week of October, shows that 60% of Republicans want the former president to run again, and 73% view him favorably. But a majority of all respondents do not want to see a return of Trump in 2024. Overall, only 28% of respondents to the poll wanted him to run again, but it was 71% who did not want to see another run from Trump. Meanwhile, job performance numbers for other politicians. Governor Evers is nearly tied at the number of people who approve of his job performance, 45%, and the number of people who disapprove, that's 46%. For U.S. Senator Ron Johnson, 36% of people say they have a favorable opinion of him, 42% unfavorable, and 22% don't have enough information.
1: The jury for the Kyle Rittenhouse trial continued to deliberate today on what is now the third day of deliberation. They asked to go home about two hours ago. Meanwhile, the news outlet MSNBC has been banned from the courthouse after police say a man followed the jury bus and may have tried to photograph the jury, the Associated Press reports. Judge Bruce Schroeder has barred anyone from photographing jurors at the beginning of the trial. Schroeder called the action a, quote, extremely serious matter, end quote, and will refer it to the proper authorities for further action. The network said in a statement that the man was a freelance journalist who had received a traffic citation near the jury vehicle and did not intend to photograph the jury. MSNBC says that they will fully cooperate with an investigation.
0: Assembly Speaker Robin Voss attacked UW-Madison for referencing critical race theory in a student training, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. The course, titled Graduate and Professional Students Preventing and Responding to Sexual and Relationship Violence, is required training for all graduate-level students. Voss complained in a letter that the course teaches that, quote, whiteness means privilege, end quote. UW-Madison spokesperson John Lucas said the training contains a brief reference to critical race theory and the concepts are supported by academic research. Lucas said the university will continue to run the training and make any appropriate changes for the spring of 2022.
1: Today, the Madison Board of Police and Fire Commissioners announced that the search for the city's next fire chief is underway as Madison Fire Chief Stephen Davis is set to retire in spring 2022. Davis joined the Madison Fire Department in 1989 and became fire chief in 2012. As he retires, this will be the first national search to fill the position since 1996. Applications are due mid-December to be followed by rounds of public input and candidate interviews. The commission is slated to announce Madison's next fire chief by mid-March 2022.
0: The Greater Madison Planning Organization has approved funding for multiple bicycle and pedestrian paths around the city. The Madison Planning Organization, or MPO, is a part of a federally designated group responsible for planning urban metropolitan areas. The plans partially fund a new multi-use path on the north side of Mineral Point Road, adding pedestrian crossing improvements and bike lanes on Atwood Avenue, and reconstructing bridges, shoreline, and paths along John Nolan Drive. The projects will be federally funded and are decided in conjunction with the City of Madison and the Wisconsin Department of Transportation.
1: Ada Deer, a member of the Menominee Tribe and director of UW-Madison's American Indian Studies program, spoke with students of Franklin Elementary today. The Capital Times reports that Deer gave the students a close look at traditional American Indian artifacts. Deere was the first American Indian woman in Wisconsin to run for U.S. Congress and the first American Indian woman to be head of the National Bureau of Indian Affairs. Speaking to the students about her culture and the importance of friendship, Deere visited the school during National American Indian Heritage Month.
0: The Madison School District will launch three COVID-19 vaccine clinics for 5 to 11-year-olds, says the Wisconsin State Journal. The clinics will be run in conjunction with SSM Health, who have helped to identify areas where vaccine access may be less readily available. As COVID cases have risen almost 18% in the last two weeks, district staff say they are looking to protect their students any way they can. The clinics will run Friday and Saturday at Stevens, Leopold, and Thoreau Elementary Schools and have room for around 380 students. Parents are asked to schedule an appointment for their students in advance.
1: And finally, the Wisconsin DNR reported today that, barn owl, that a barn owl nest was documented in Wisconsin for the first time in more than 20 years. Though they are one of the most widespread birds in the world, they have been uncommon here in Wisconsin and replaced on the state endangered species list in the 1980s. The nest was found in a dead tree in a La Crosse resident's backyard and was picked up by the Cooley Region Humane Society. The DNR says that we can support the barn owl by leaving up dead trees when it is safe to do so and to avoid using pesticides and rodenticides. And now, on to today's top stories.
0: Today, Governor Tony Evers formally vetoed GOP-drawn redistricting proposals, setting off a plan for the maps to be drawn by the courts. WORT reporter Ben Kern has more.
2: As we sit one week away from Thanksgiving, we also find ourselves inching along redistricting season. This once-a-decade process of redrawing political maps typically follows the release of updated U.S. census numbers. This year... Pandemic and politically-induced delays caused more of a time crunch in redistricting than usual. Governor Evers released a video this morning from his office in the Capitol building, where he verbally and formally vetoed proposals for legislative and congressional maps for the next decade. These maps were approved last Thursday by the GOP-led state Senate. Evers, visibly frustrated, officially rejected these maps on video.
3: What's sitting in front of me here are gerrymandered maps modeled after the same gerrymandered maps we've had for a decade. Hundreds showed up on short notice to voice their opposition to these maps, and not a single member of the public testified in support of these bills at that public hearing. And they were sent out to my desk over the objections of a decade's worth of people in the state demanding better, demanding more, and demanding a fair Nonpartisan process for preparing our maps for the next 10
2: years. Those public hearings took place at the end of October. While Assembly Speaker Robin Voss and Senate Majority Leader Devin LeMahieu were in favor, critics contended they were no better than the GOP-drawn maps from 2011. Those maps drawn a decade ago were drawn behind closed doors by private law firms. GOP legislators had to sign secrecy agreements before seeing the new maps for their own districts. The maps relocated hundreds of thousands of voters into new districts and were also criticized for splitting the Latino vote. Evers says this proposal is no better.
3: And the gerrymandered maps Republicans passed a decade ago have enabled legislators to safely ignore the people who elected them. And these maps here, they're more of the same. They're gerrymandering 2.0.
2: Governor Evers organized a nonpartisan commission in early 2021 to draft their own map proposal. That commission's proposal was rejected last week by Republican lawmakers and, unusually, also by some Democratic legislators. Today's veto formally triggers court involvement, though involvement from the judiciary has long been expected. The Wisconsin State Supreme Court recently agreed to hear the case. Mel Barnes is staff counsel at Law Forward. She's representing nonprofit voter rights groups in the state Supreme Court case and says there's a lot coming up this winter.
0: What's going to happen over the next couple of weeks is at the end of this month, the Supreme Court of the state of Wisconsin will announce what criteria it is going to consider for evaluating proposed maps as part of the redistricting process. And through the month of December, parties to that litigation will develop a plan for discovery, will submit proposed maps to the court, and then respond to the proposals by the other parties. This all cues the court up to then review those proposed maps and issue a decision in January.
2: Meanwhile, related lawsuits over Wisconsin's next maps await in federal court but federal judges have signaled they will wait for the state Supreme Court to rule. And, in a related case, the Wisconsin Supreme Court is also determining whether state Republican legislative leaders broke the law when they preemptively hired private attorneys to give legal advice over presumed redistricting lawsuits, though there were no such lawsuits at the time. However, that case has no bearing over the current redistricting dispute. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Ben Kern. Nitrates are chemicals typically used
1: in farming that have a nasty habit of leaking into and damaging groundwater. The DNR planned to implement rules to help deal with nitrate contamination in central Wisconsin, but it looks like those rules won't be coming anytime soon. Reporter Martin Rocket Rocket returns to WORT for the story.
4: Yesterday, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, or DNR, said that it would not be implementing new rule changes to address nitrate contamination. The DNR has been pursuing those rule changes since 2019, when Governor Evers proclaimed the Year of Clean Water and instructed state agencies to address nitrate contamination in groundwater. Now, the DNR says that their work is being held up by legislative rulemaking, and that due to time lines established by the legislature, the department does not have time to complete the rulemaking process. Nitrates are used in fertilizers to improve crop yields and make their way into the environment through industrial agriculture. According to the DNR's website, exposure to high levels of nitrates can cause birth defects, thyroid disease, and colon cancer. The changes sought by the DNR would modify a rule called NR151. That regulation has been in place for decades, but these changes would set targeted standards in the parts of Wisconsin that have particularly permeable soils. Scott Lasser is the Water Program Director for Environmental Advocacy Group Clean Wisconsin. He says certain areas of Wisconsin are more vulnerable to nitrate contamination in groundwater than others.
5: What makes certain areas vulnerable to nitrate contamination is a combination of both the type of soil and its depth as well as the type of bedrock that's there. In central Wisconsin, wells are vulnerable to nitrate contamination because the soil is very sandy and nitrates move quickly through sandy soils. In southwest Wisconsin and northeast Wisconsin and other parts of western Wisconsin, those wells are vulnerable because of the relatively shallow soils and the cracked bedrock. And so once that uh, nitrate pollution gets through those shallow soils, it can move really quickly through that cracked bedrock and then pollute drinking water sources.
4: According to Lasser, safe nitrate levels for drinking water are 10 milligrams per liter. He says that anywhere between 42,000 and 80,000 wells in Wisconsin have unsafe levels of nitrates. However, Implementing those standards would not have been free and industry groups such as the Dairy Business Association pushed back against the standards. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, the DNR estimated that the cost of the new standards would have been about $1 million a year, split between businesses and local governments, with the average dairy farm being forced to pay $30,000. Furthermore, the DNR found that actually replacing the wells would have cost more than $440 million. However, Lasser says that the benefits would have outweighed the costs and that the state is losing money by not fixing the nitrate issue.
5: Our organization published a paper in a peer-reviewed journal last year estimating that the annual medical cost Born by Wisconsin families alone because of nitrate contamination at somewhere between 23 and, and 80 million dollars. What we should really be focusing on is the cost of inaction and that cost is born by families with contaminated drinking
4: water. Lasser wrote in an op-ed in the Washington Examiner that the guidelines of the rulemaking process ultimately sunk the proposed rule change. As part of the process, the Wisconsin DNR held a public hearing to hear the comments of other citizens. Some, such as Wes Davis of Janesville, spoke in favor of the change, saying that he was concerned about groundwater quality. People
5: who drink the water with high nitrates have to be concerned. I'm also concerned about the nitrates in the part of the county where it's 30 or 40 parts per million, something we can't afford to have. People drinking the water there face real health issues, and some of those people are the farmers themselves.
4: Others, such as a resident of Janesville spoke against, saying that the DNR had not properly justified their decision to update the rules.
6: There are current runoff standards existing under current law. We don't know if these standards have been put into place, nor any studies showing how successful these standards have been. This should have been done before we're
7: burdened with more rules.
4: The Wisconsin DNR did not respond to a request for comment by time of broadcast. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Martin Rockazzoli.
0: It's 6.21 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. There is a new marijuana bill being passed around in the state assembly, and this time it's a bipartisan effort to remove the felony conviction for possession. It would effectively unify the state's current patchwork approach that allows for small amounts of pot to be more or less decriminalized in Madison, but carries more penalties in other parts of the state. WORT reporter Jada Siri Ramos spoke with Representative Shea Sortwell of Two Rivers, the Republican author of the bill, earlier today.
8: Thank you so much for joining me today, Representative Sortwell. Earlier this week, you introduced a bill uh, with Representative Ortiz-Velez that would change the state's cannabis laws. Can you walk me through what those changes would do?
6: Basically, what it does is it sets a a standard across the state so right now we have somewhat of a patchwork for uh, how different municipalities treat it and so uh, what it would do is for everything under 14 grams so half an ounce it would be treated as a civil forfeiture like a traffic ticket and it would have a range of a hundred to two hundred fifty dollars depending on the municipality they can set that range if they want but uh, it has to be within that range. So, in some areas, that will bring the penalty up a little bit. In some areas, it'll bring it down. Um, in addition to that, then everything that is under an ounce would still be at the misdemeanor level level it's at now. However, for everything under an ounce, so between half an ounce and a full ounce, and everything under the half ounce, we eliminate the penalty enhancer for repeat um, incidents. So. Every t- if you were caught a second time or a third time with marijuana right now under current law, that would become a felony. Uh, we eliminate that. And so that, that is a, a significant step in the right direction for a lot of people who want reform in the marijuana area. And so we do that. And then in addition to that, we also put in place some liability protections for employers. Those who choose not to do uh, marijuana testing, it doesn't automatically presume their liability if they choose not to do that. That's kind of the bill in a nutshell.
8: So the the part where currently under our state law, if you're caught with ca- cannabis a second time, it's, it's a felony, right? So this is a, a big step, right? I think
6: so. I think that's a, a critical part. And so, you know, obviously this was a bill we tried to put together to try to bring together um, a lot of different perspectives in the state, because there are people who want to be you know tougher on marijuana usage there's people who want to make it more legalized right and so trying to figure out where we where we bring that all together is difficult and so as we kind of thought about it 's like okay there the people who want reform, even if you're in, say, Milwaukee, that has a, a dollar fine, you know, if if the municipality actually prosecutes it rather than what if you get pulled over by, say, a state trooper, if you get pulled over by a state trooper and he happens to see marijuana, you could automatically jump right up to a felony. You're already at a misdemeanor level right now under current law. If it's prosecuted by a state by a state official, you know, I, I think that went ahead and, you know, got a lot of support from people like Rev Zav Ortiz-Velez, uh, Senator Taylor. On the other hand, I talked with some uh, Republicans who are a little bit more of the other mindset, and they like the a- idea that, you know, at, at very least in places like Milwaukee, you know, at least there's some sort of penalty for it. And so it will it would still have a $100 fine. Now, of course, you know, local prosecutors don't have to prosecute. we don't, We can't force them to prosecute certain crimes. That's kind of their discretion. But to have that universal standard across the state would be enormous for people. And, and getting rid of that repeat offense enhancement to, or right up to a felony, that, yeah, that's a really big deal for people who want reform in this area.
8: One thing that you just mentioned, which I think is, is a big concern for my listeners, right? WORT is based out of Madison. And mm-hmm. here it's, you know... Pretty much decriminalized to have a certain amount, right? P- sure. Possession, as opposed to, I think, distribution is still criminalized. But right. Um. So, I guess, what would this bill mean here? Well, under this
6: bill, what it would mean is for anything under that 14, that 14 grams and a half an ounce. If you, were, if you were within anywhere in the state of Wisconsin, you would be you would be pay, facing a civil forfeiture, which is just like a traffic ticket. You have to pay that fine, that $100. You can send it in the mail. We do that in the bill, too, so you don't even have to appear in court and take off time from work. You just have to send in that fine. And I realize that some people may not like that because it's like, well, you know, I don't have to deal with that now. But look, right now in the state of Wisconsin, it's not like marijuana is legal, which means you've got to be getting it somewhere, <laughs> which means, You know, there's a decent chance you're say you're going outside the city of Madison in order to get it. You might be crossing county lines. You might be going down to Illinois and getting it. And if, if you're pulled over by a state trooper or even a you know a, a county sheriff or whatever, you could automatically be jumping all the way up to a misdemeanor level, even if it's the first time they've ever caught you. And if this is the second time you're facing it and you don't happen to be in the city of Madison, all of a sudden that's gonna jump to a felony level. If you never leave the city of Madison, you may feel, well, this is stupid for me. If you ever no travel outside the city l- limits, that could have a very significant impact on your life to be facing a felony charge, whereas under my bill, Um, you won't be facing that as, as long as you stay under half an ounce. It's only civil forfeiture. As long as you stay under the full ounce, you won't even be facing, you'll only be facing misdemeanor.
8: So it's been a couple of days since you announced the bill and you started circulating it. What's the response been like?
6: I've actually been relatively pleased with the response. Um, a lot of people obviously are kind of getting prepped for holidays or hunting season, big big in different areas of the state. But we've already had some good conversations with some even re- Republican legislators. One of the legislators that I actually thought would be mo- much more likely to be a no on the bill actually told me that if it went to the floor that, that person would vote yes. It's like, huh. Well, wow, that's, that's that was really encouraging to me. I really think this bill has the potential for bringing both sides together and saying that yes, you know, it's having some impacts and maybe some of the people in Madison or Milwaukee aren't huge fans of certain aspects of it, but there's other really critically good parts of the bill. And then on the other side of it, for the people who are more about, you know, you know, being tough on this or whatever, we have the fact that we're extending a standard across the entire state. We're also saving uh, law enforcement money and, and the court's money and time because of the way we changed the processing of this. So this has been fairly well received.
8: Well, I am certainly um, interested to continue watching where this bill goes. So yeah. I, I have to ask, so recently you've had some negative media coverage regarding corporal punishment. Um, and do you worry that that's going to make it harder to get bipartisan support for this legislation?
6: No, you know, the. I, I really not a wasn't really looking to have that conversation necessarily but you know look I, I believe most people in the United States most people in America most people in Wisconsin understand the very constitutional uh, principle of innocence and so proven guilty right and in that incident if anyone who's done their due diligence on it notice will note that there that the assistant district attorney in that case determined that there wasn't even enough evidence for him to actually move forward with a charge let alone prosecute you know to prosecute anything so i will say that there is certainly information out there that that was redacted for privacy's sake there's additional information there that ought to be you, you ought to understand that the assistant district attorney is going to make a, a good and full rational decision on this and so no i don't i don't think that's going to cause any significant issues because I think most people believe in the Constitution and believe in the fact that you know, a, an accusation from a family member nine years ago that went nowhere is not even a news story. It's really not newsworthy.
8: Well, I appreciate you taking uh, answering that question. Is there anything that you uh, want to say that we didn't cover before we go today? No, I don't think so.
6: Um, I just I hope we we will. We'll, if if anyone supports this bill, I know there's some pushback from some people in areas like Madison that are think that, you know, because the penalties are lower in Madison, that somehow this doesn't benefit them. And it's a step backwards. But I, I really challenge them to consider the fact that anybody who steps outside the city bounds of Madison could automatically jump up to a felony. And That's a very serious concern that uh, I think this bill would would remove. So I I encourage the people even from Madison, Milwaukee, other areas where there is a civil forfeiture in place already, that they consider the benefit for their own constituents as well as the rest of the state.
8: Great. Uh, Thank you again for your time today, Representative Sortwell. I hope you have a good rest of your day.
6: Thank you. You're listening to
1: local news on WORT. Let's check, check in on some world headlines back in a flash. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Nate Wuggy hout here with my co-host, Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us.
0: Pre-pandemic, it used to be that we would feature a journalist from Isthmus newspaper every week on Thursdays. Now that the Alt Weekly is in month four of its return to print, they're releasing their papers monthly. WORT Assistant News Director Nate Wegehout talks with Ron Seely on his story in the most recent issue of Isthmus on Wisconsin's relationship with wolves.
1: With me today is Ron Seely. Seely is a reporter for the Isthmus paper and released the cover story for the November issue of the Isthmus, Howl, a look at Wisconsin's history with wolves after the wolf hunt earlier this year. Ron, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. So just to start things off here, can you tell me a little bit how you got interested in the story?
9: I, um, my background is I'm an environmental uh, writer. I'm a freelance writer now, but for about 35 years, I was a science and environmental reporter for the Wisconsin State Journal here in Madison uh, doing uh, daily news stories, but also a lot of investigative work, including a lot of investigative environmental stories. It just so happens that the year I started, 1978, was the same year that the wolf recovery effort started in Wisconsin. Uh, Wolves had disappeared from the state largely, but they started coming back into the state, wandering back in from the wilderness areas of Minnesota, and they found plenty of protected wildland in Wisconsin. They also enjoyed the protection of the Endangered Species Act, so their numbers began to grow. Uh, I was lucky enough as a reporter to be able to follow that story, the uh, increasing uh, growth of the wolf population, also the increasing uh, controversy as uh, people, uh, you know, dealt with wolves returning and dealt with the attendant, sometimes problems uh, that they viewed uh, as problems. of uh, It's been a, a love-hate uh, relationship from uh, the beginning and of course in the years prior to that it was wolves were bountied and uh, and and uh, wolves have among a lot of people who uh, believe certain myths and misconceptions about wolves
1: you did mention like the wolf bounties there and sort of in the past they've been sort of seen more as something that nobody wants around has that sort of attitude changed in recent years
6: yeah, I, I think
9: as, as the numbers uh, grew and people became accustomed again to having wolves in our forests, to hearing them howl, to, uh, they, they began to understand, I think, a little more about mm, the beneficial aspects of a wolf, the wolf population on forest ecology, on uh, keeping the deer herd healthy. I think there, there grew to be more acceptance. Now, that acceptance is greater in the South. Then, in the north, where wolves were sort of at the edge of town, and more people had to deal with uh, their pets uh, some, sometimes pets got killed by wolves. It really was sort of divided between north and south. Overall, acceptance of wolves uh, grew, but that changed somewhat when um, the uh, hunting season started and and we've seen some change since then. there are I think there are also. As I reported in the article, some political changes that have led to, again, sort of a a rise once again of these wrong-headed ideas about wolves. And the the, the spread of that misinformation uh, has led to perhaps some animosity, a little more animosity towards the wolf.
1: So now I want to start getting into the wolf hunts that have been happening. So starting off with the one that was earlier this year, the group Hunter Nation really led the call for the wolf hunt. Can you tell me a little bit about Hunter Nation?
9: Yeah, it's uh, it's a far-right hunting uh, advocacy group. It's, it's a lot different than uh, a lot of our uh, local uh, hunter organizations and, and many other hunter organizations in that it's very politicized. It's run by a fellow named Hilderman, who is uh, was formerly uh, with uh, a number of very conservative uh, groups, politically the political fundraising groups, well known in in political circles. And uh, Ken Hilderman is his uh, name. He um, and he has really brought uh, a political uh, stance to this uh, group that. Uh, mixes uh, politics and and wildlife uh, management in, in what is not a, a real healthy way.
1: So there was a another wolf hunt that was slated to be held this month that was put on hold by a judge just a couple of weeks ago here in Dane County. Can you explain to me why that hunt was put on hold?
9: Yeah, it was basically uh, the result of a lawsuit by a number of uh, groups uh, that support the wolf that are against the hunt for any number of reasons, biological reasons. These groups filed uh, to stop the hunt, and uh, the judge uh, agreed that uh, it was interesting because the judge uh, basically called the uh, DNR to uh, to account for not having a, uh, a wolf management plan, and the, the, the DNR has uh, put together a plan back in uh, the uh, late. 80s, early 90s, and, and hasn't really rewritten the plan since then. Uh, and the judge uh, felt that, that there needed to be a wolf management plan with appropriate quotas for hunts and so forth before uh, a hunt could go forward. Uh, the tribes in the state that view the wolf as uh, sacred, uh, they don't. They Although they get a portion of the quota based on their treaties, they uh, do not hunt the wolves that they are given in their quota. They filed suit because they felt that uh, the quota that was set by the state didn't take into account their their portion of the quota. In fact, it uh, artificially uh, elevated uh, the state quota to negate the, the tribe's quota. That, uh, the tribes felt, was a violation of their treaties. So they filed suit, and uh, in a separate case,
1: so, Ron, any final thoughts that you want to express either on the wolf hunt or on wolves sort of in general there?
9: yeah, you know, it's been encouraging to me over the years to see people you know, become accepting of wolves. I know people can change in their attitudes. I spent uh, a lot of time traveling with biologists, flying with biologists, uh, tracking wolves. I've uh, had many encounters of my own with wolves. Uh, they're beautiful, uh, intelligent uh, animals.
1: Well, Ron, thank you so much for uh, coming on and talking with me here today. I really appreciate uh, you coming on.
9: Yeah, no, it's it's
1: a pleasure. I've been talking with Ron Seeley, reporter at the Isthmus, writer of the story Howell, in the latest edition of the Isthmus newspaper. Since 1996, a section of the Federal Communications Decency Act has allowed web companies to flourish protected from user-generated content with the intention to allow site providers to police themselves. But two recent Wisconsin cases against a site for selling firearms demonstrate what many politicians see as flaws that overly protect websites from changing dangerous business practices. This week on New Domains, feature contributor Paul Herman goes over the significance of Section 230, a law that has shaped the web.
7: Welcome to New Domains, a series about digital culture in and around Madison. My name is Paul Herman. Today, I'll be sharing another story behind our virtual landscape. Last week Thursday, a federal U.S. district judge dismissed a Wisconsin lawsuit against ArmsList.com, a website similar to Craigslist for buyers and sellers of firearms. Richard Weber had filed the lawsuit against ArmsList. In January 2019, his daughter, Sarah Schmidt, was shot and killed by her estranged husband, Robert Schmidt, who also took his own life. The shooting took place in Harrison, Wisconsin, a town near Appleton. Robert Schmidt, who wasn't allowed to have a gun due to an ongoing domestic violence case, used Arms List to connect with a private seller and bought a handgun in a Walmart parking lot a day before he fatally shot his wife. Federal law requires background checks for sales by licensed gun sellers, but not for private sales. Weber claimed Arms List allowed Robert Schmidt to illegally obtain the handgun as a result of, quote, reckless and unlawful business practices, end quote. But Judge William Griesbeck dismissed Weber's lawsuit against Armslist, saying, quote, "...lawfully providing a forum for individuals to engage others interested in buying and selling firearms is simply too far removed from and out of proportion to the criminal act." End quote. The law protecting Armslist is Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act. Its subsection, C1, is a concise 26 letters that has shaped the internet. It reads, no provider or user of an interactive computer service, a platform, shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. Section 230 protects the concepts and business models that countless websites of all kinds, Facebook, Wikipedia, Reddit, YouTube, rely on, user-generated content. Under Section 230, websites can't be treated as the publisher or speaker of third-party content, this protects them from most lawsuits if a user posts something illegal. Across the tech industry, internet lawyers, and academics, Section 230 is heralded as responsible for free speech on the Internet. The Electronic Frontier Foundation, a nonprofit digital rights group, calls, textons, calls Section 230, quote, the most important law protecting Internet speech, end quote. Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey said nearly the same to Congress in 2020.
3: Section 230 is the most important law protecting Internet speech, and removing Section 230 will remove speech from the Internet.
7: And Daniel Citrone, a law professor at the University of Virginia known for defending Section 230, calls it better than the First Amendment for America's free speech and economic prosperity. But Section 230 has grown increasingly controversial. Critics argue that the law is too broad and lets powerful companies ignore real harm to users. They point to cases since the law's inception that have protected companies from changing dangerous business practices. One such high profile case from 2019 involves ArmsList, the same website that was ruled in favor last week, and another Wisconsin resident who sued them for an eerily similar case. In October 2012, Radcliffe Houghton bought a semiotic handgun in a McDonald's parking lot from a private seller he met on ArmsList.com. The next day, he went to the Azana Spa in Brookfield, Wisconsin, where his wife, Zena Daniel Houghton, worked. Radcliffe shot and killed her and two other employees before taking his own life. Zena's daughter, Yassine Daniel, sued Armslist for negligence and wrongful death, her lawyers arguing the company set itself up to facilitate illegal gun sales. Users can filter searches on Armslist to show only private sellers, which under federal law do not have to provide background checks. Armslist, in turn, applied for the dismissal of all Daniels' claims on the grounds of Section 230. In April of 2019, the Wisconsin Supreme Court sided with Armslist in a five-one decision. They argued even if it could be proven that Armslist intentionally facilitated illegal gun sales, Section 230 immunity applied. As long as Armslist didn't help create posts itself, it was protected. Politicians across the aisles believe Section 230 needs revision. But with how intertwined the law has become with the web, Internet companies and nonprofits point out that careful rewriting needs to occur instead of outright revoking the law. One proposal currently working through Congress is called the Safe Tech Act, and it may provide a solution for cases like the ones against ArmsList. The bill proposed by three Democrats would remove protections from specific categories of civil claims, including cyberstalking and harassment, civil rights violations, and wrongful death such as in the Arms List case. The bill would also swap the word speech for information with the hope to refocus Section 230's protection towards self-expression instead of commercial transactions. But the list of proposals, debates, and concerns on Section 230 is monumental. It may take long deliberation to come to a law that can be agreed on, but with the potential for harm as demonstrated in Wisconsin's court history of Section 230, it's a discussion that many say needs to happen. Thank you for listening to New Domains. Reporting for WRT News, I'm Paul Herman.
1: It is 6.46 p.m. and you're listening to live local news on WORT.
0: graduate students created an exhibit entitled Intersections, Indigenous Textiles of the Americas. It was co-curated by Indigenous scholars Kendra Greethier and Dakota Mace and was on display in Nancy Nicholas Hall on campus. And it now lives online at the Center for Design and Material Culture website. We heard part one of the series last week, where the conversation started by honoring ancestors and paying respect to the makers of textiles on display. Tonight, in this archival edition of Radio Chipstone and part two of the series, Mace tells contributor, Jennifer Fields, how the collection came to the School of Human Ecology and the Center for Design and Material Culture.
10: So the history of this collection actually starts with Helen Allen Luis. Uh, so she was not only a professor here at UW, but she was a woman that traveled all over the world. So she was collecting all of these textiles, uh, very early on in the 20, like the 20th century. And she was able to basically start this textile collection. And that's what really has inspired not only classes to come into the space, but also uh, researchers to come in and help with learning about these objects. So that was one of the most difficult things when it came to approaching this exhibition was the fact that there was little to no research on any of these specific objects. So uh, since I work here at the textile collection, I was kind of in charge of being able to not only research these objects but also learn as much as possible when it came to the weaving techniques but also to the intention behind the designs or the materials used. Uh, but it was a, a very long road to be able to do this. But not only was it benefiting the community here, it was benefiting the textile collection because now we have this research and we'll be able to share it with future uh, accessions or any type of new objects that come into the collection.
4: Kendra, as we stand here, we're we're standing in the section entitled Motion. Talk
11: to me about the concept behind this area. Absolutely. We wanted to highlight the exchange that was happening across lands and the movement that was also taking place. So we highlight bags that would have been used for specific things like coca bags that would have been used specifically for coca leaves, the rawhide bags that would have been used in the plains. And this would have allowed for easy transportation. And also it's a very durable material and can withstand rain. And then we have a a bag made out of corn husks. And really wanted to highlight this because, because of co- corn as a crop and how significant that was for the Americas and how widespread it was. The colors of the patterns are still very vibrant and it's displayed so that you can see both sides of the bag. Um, this is the only one in the exhibition that we were able to do this with. So you can see one side with a diamond pattern, uh, with four diff, with three different dyes used on a natural background with, um, more of a, uh, like great basin, just, um, a pattern reflected of, reflective of the plateau region. Um, that's also very geometric.
4: So is one way, Kendra, to identify or one aspect you could use to identify bags from different people's be the pattern?
11: Oh, definitely, um... A design was very reflective of the group of people that were making it. And as you can see in the motion section, each culture had very different ways of making patterns, Um, not only in the motion section, but throughout the exhibition. And a lot of them do highlight the natural world around them. And you can also just see the expansive interpretations of the lands people are living in by looking at this section and the variety of size, use, construction, pattern, color.
4: (laughs) So behind us, we go from motion to story. Dakota, is this where we're seeing more influences by people as they're moving around regions? Yeah, so the story
10: sections is my baby. (laughs) Uh, But my my research is in specifically looking at designs that come from indigenous communities. So the reason why that this looks so similar to the bags in uh, motion is that this uh, shawl comes from Bolivia. So Bolivia, Peru, like all of these cultures speak a very similar language as well as have a very similar design aesthetic. So this, again, is just due to history. But also, as you look through this section, uh, you will notice the star motif pops up constantly all throughout. And this is the what we wanted to highlight in stories is the fact that our cultural narratives are expressed through design. So for the star, it represents various different things in each indigenous community, but it's something that has inspired us greatly, but also shows the motion that was happening between through design specifically. So the uh, in this case, we look at stars and how they reference not only the cosmology, but also it is a uh, connector to the way that we translate our, our own stories ourselves. Um, so in this um, section, we are basing it off of design and less about the uh, significance of the um, movement, but also the way that design is translated into a totally different understanding of textiles. What you'll also see highlighted is the satilo design, also known as the diamond motif. So this is something that pops up in all Indigenous communities has and has really greatly affected the way that we read Indigenous textiles. So with the satilo mo- motif, there is no true understanding of where it originates. So the origin is unknown. There are stories that it comes from Satilo, Mexico. But it again, it pops up in multiple Indigenous communities, and you can tell the difference between the satilo design is the fact that it has serrated ends. So you can see as you look into a textile that it has these kind of slanted areas, but it it has inspired multiple Indigenous people. So for stories, we really wanted to focus on the fact that these Indigenous communities not only were exchanging materials, techniques, uh, but they were also sharing stories and designs. One of the mistakes I don't want to make with this exhibit is couching it all in the past.
4: Mm -hmm. What are the contemporary elements to this exhibit, Kendra?
11: Well, the final piece in the exhibition is a textile by Jason Wiesaw. He's a member of the Pakagan Band of Potawatomi from Michigan. And his work, Ashok Mage Waboyan, Healing Blanket. It's uh, hand-dyed and hand-sewn muslin flannel transfer prints and cyanotype. And he has treaties related to the Pokagon Band printed on pieces of paper that he's then attached to the fabric that it looks similar to a jingle dress. Each of the pieces of paper is wrapped to look like a cone and they're attached to ribbon. We really wanted this contemporary piece to finish the exhibition so that because so many exhibitions stop the narrative once that museum has stopped collecting, actively collecting, which ends in the early 1900s, mid 1900s, if you're lucky. And it also adds to the narrative that Native people are, have been completely wiped out. And, and we wanted to end the exhibition this way. So that we're sending the message that no, there are still indigenous people here. We are not a vanished race, and we continue to engage in these art forms that typically would have been only a historical exhibition on textiles, but ending it with a contemporary artist that there is a future that is happening, and we are continuing our culture and our own narratives associated with, in this case, textiles.
4: For WORT, I'm Jennifer Field.
1: And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporters tonight were Ben Kern. Martin Rocketsoli and Jade Izari Ramos. Special thanks to the feature contributors Jennifer Fields and Paul Herman, as well as Isthmus Newspaper. Dylan Brogan engineered this show, and Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your producer and host, Nate Waggehout.
0: And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Don't forget to download the WORT app. It's a great way to get your favorite music shows on demand. And stay up to date on the news with the WORT Local News Podcast. You can find it on your favorite podcast subscription platform. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night.